I'm afraid we will repeat this pattern. So this time I remind my father that I still want to watch him perform surgery. The day before Yom Kippur, my father secures my mother's agreement in advance so that he can take me to watch him do a hernia operation. Mom wakes me up at 6.30 a.m. I know that Dad will be dressed immaculately. In Dad's honor, I put on a button-down shirt, and I wear my shul shoes instead of my Converse All-Stars. We drive in silence. Dad likes rambling with gambling on W.O.R., but he agrees to switch to the sports channel for me. His team, the Mets, are terrible. But they do have two home run hitters, Daryl Strawberry and Dave Kingman. My team, the Yankees, still have some leftovers from their championship runs of the 70s, but neither team is going to make the playoffs. When we reach the hospital, we find a space in the physician's parking lot, and I follow Dad inside. He stops to introduce me to every nurse and doctor we pass. This is my boy, he declares with his gap-toothed smile, his chin raised high in paternal pride. What do you think of that? All this despite my near-total lack of accomplishments, other than collecting degrees and avoiding arrest. The nursing supervisor grants me that beneficent smile bestowed upon young adults. She might be sizing up my potential to join the ranks, but more likely she's searching in me for my father's youth. Of course, if I was on track, I would be halfway through medical school by age 26, and my dad would make sure the entire hospital staff knew all about it. Maybe I am in medical school. No, I would remember. Inside the surgeon's locker room, I watch my father now, as with the same meticulous attention he shows at home, he removes his perfectly pressed jacket and vest and suspends them on hangers in his locker. Without his jacket on, the narrow shoulders characteristic of the men in our family are more pronounced. It's as if we must balance the weight of the world only on our heads. Dad plucks a folded rectangle from a stack flicks it open, and within seconds is draped in pale green. I've seen my father many times in his white lab coat at his private office, but I've never seen him wearing scrubs before. They don't seem to fit him, but they probably don't fit anyone. <clears throat> Use the toilet now. You won't have another chance. I follow these instructions, and then Dad hands me a flat green package. What's this for? Put it on. Once I'm encased in green, he gives me what look like shower caps to put over my shoes. And then he says, Let's scrub. My father rolls up his sleeves. He attacks his hands with enough force to remove encrusted meat from a burnt pot. He scrubs his fingers first, then his palms and the back of his hands, his wrists, up his forearms, crawling past his elbows. So I do the same thing one beat behind him, imitating every gesture. The soap is grainy and abrasive. It's liquid Baraxo. It searches out every tiny scrape, so it stings up and down my arms. And it also reeks, as if it's trying to compel the bacteria to commit suicide. Washing in tandem is like aligning the plow or preparing to go into battle together. It's a hairy man moment. 
I don't need to be taking these precautions because I'll be sitting behind glass with George Clooney. But I'm excited that Dad wants to make my adventure as experiential as possible. My father rinses off the soap and shakes off the water, so I do the same thing, and then I reach for a towel. But Dad starts again. So I, too, scour my hands and arms for a second time, until all surface wounds have been thoroughly disinfected. Now I take the towel. But Dad does it a third time, so I keep up with him. By the fifth round, my skin is raw, bright red, and cracks are forming across the knuckles on the backs of my hands. By the seventh wash, the stinging turns to throbbing pain. I fight back tears as the gritty soap passes through my epidermis directly into my bloodstream. We are apparently trapped in an endless loop, which will continue until we expose the bone. We scrub ten times. I'm on the verge of losing consciousness. And then my father stops scrubbing. Ten is the magic number. The disposable towels feel like sandpaper, and I can't bear to touch them, so I air-dry my two lobsters. My father puts on rubber surgical gloves and then hands me a pair. Why on earth do we need gloves? Nothing could be cleaner than our hands. But gloves it is. And these are not loose-fitting pot-washing gloves. These gloves adhere to your fingers, They have to be tugged and pulled and yanked, snug as a scuba suit, in order to become a second skin. But my first skin is raw nerve. I don't have enough feeling in my digits to slip them into the finger sockets. He tells me to raise up my hands in front of me. He puts a glove in position over my left hand and yanks it down in one mighty jerk. The pain is shocking and swift. I reel several steps backward into the wall, and I use my elbows to right myself, and then I come back to Dad with my hand still raised in the air. Now Dad yanks the right glove down into place, making my head spin in exorcist circles. If we're wearing gloves, why did we need to scrub so much? This is all part of the experience. That's what I tell myself. My father takes out a surgical hat and mask, My hands no longer function, so he covers my hair and spreads the mask across my nose and mouth, slipping the elastics over my ears. I can hear myself inhale and exhale as the puffs of carbon dioxide escape north and fog my glasses. I nudge the mask down below my nose so I'll be able to see, but Dad pulls it back in place. We leave the locker room. I am dazed and sanitized, gloved and masked, ten times scrubbed inside my ill-fitting disguise. If someone asks you a question, nod your head. Whatever you do, don't speak. Dad is a senior and popular member of the staff, and he's always been the paragon of propriety. But if I'm not allowed to talk, we're probably doing something wrong. I'm not really worried, though, because I'm encased in his aura. As we proceed down the corridor... My father greets passing colleagues, but this time he doesn't introduce me to any of them. It's only now that I grasp that we're not going to a surgical amphitheater. I wonder what the penalties are for impersonating a physician, a fine or jail time. Would community service include rolling bandages, or would I have to help patients with bed sores? What are bed sores? And what about dad? Could he lose his license? Will Robert Bly's Mishagas destroy my father's career? 
Another physician, bald, fatter and shorter than my dad, but clad in the same green paper costume, falls in step beside him. Morning, Marty. Marty. This is Dr. Perlman, an anesthesiologist. Again, my father fails to introduce me, and instead, Dad says, That Dave Kingman is a real slugger. The fact that Dad initiates this baseball talk is unexpected. Dr. Perlman thinks that Kingman is a strikeout machine, to which my father responds, The Yankees will make another run. They always do. A kind word about the Yankees from my father? This is unprecedented. Dr. Perlman dismisses the Yankees' chances because the Yankees' owner and their manager are a couple of nutcases. I am a maniacal Yankee fan, and this assessment is so obviously wrong. It's literal torture for me to keep my vow of silence. Steinbrenner runs the Yankees on chaos theory, with Billy Martin hired and fired and hired again because he's a daredevil who manages brilliantly only when disaster looms. In the elevator, we are joined by the assisting surgeon, Dr. Glassmutter. Relative to my parents' circle, Dr. Glassmutter has panache and movie star looks. I recognize his blow-dried hair. I've met Dr. Glassmutter, and I'm sure he was at my bar mitzvah, but he doesn't recognize me, no doubt because I'm wearing scrubs and a mask and because I've grown since I was 13. He speaks to me, at least I think he's talking to me, but I can't understand him because my fogged-up glasses have ruined my hearing. I keep quiet, following my instructions, and I nod, trying to look agreeable. I keep nodding. I'm nodding too strongly. I'm overdoing it. Finally, finally, I stop my bobblehead. At last, we arrive at a compact, low-ceiling room, crowded with a pale green team of standing masked men and women. Our two escorts go in first, and my father follows. Dad is the last one to arrive, because the surgeon is the star. I stay right next to him, clinging to him like his shadow. The operating room is so brightly lit that every surface glints and glares, and it makes me squint. We have to sidle sideways to get to our places, past the eleven members of our cult, all eyes and glasses, all uncomfortably close to one another. I am tucked in at Dad's elbow, at the center of the row, making escape impossible. The patient is lying on his back on a waist-high gurney, one inch from us. There are so many doctors and nurses crowded into this room that for a minute I think maybe we are taking out Mr. Baum's liver after all, and I'm going to have to hold that hunk of slimy, bloody fish chum in my hands, and at this moment I know I'm going to humiliate my father, just like Michael Banks did to his father and Mary Poppins. We're here to repair a hernia. Let me remind everyone that there is no such thing as minor surgery. He says this, I think, to deflect any disappointment he suspects I feel, that my baptism of fire will be sewing up the lining of a stomach wall. There will be no organs extracted, no tumors, no blood buckets. But I'm not disappointed, not in the least. The patient is an elderly man with salt and pepper hair, He must be tall because the gurney barely contains him. Mr. Mathis is 85, and for three decades my father's been treating him for various ailments, most of them far more serious than this one. 
Mr. Mathis's midsection is covered by freshly starched, crisscrossing bright white napkins, no doubt laundered and sterilized ten times each. Mr. Mathis opens his eyes and stares straight up. He's groggy, sedated, but he is not unconscious. Will Mr. Mathis discover that I'm an imposter and in the middle of the operation sit up in fury, point at me, and declare, J'accuse! Dad bends over and whispers into Mr. Mathis's ear. The man nods his head very slightly. He says it's fine that you're here. So it turns out, my father doesn't care about hospital procedure as much as I thought he would. But he does care about the patient's consent. Marty, the anesthesiologist, tells Mr. Mathis to count down from 100, and he administers the gas. By 98, Mr. Mathis is gone. Only one small area of skin on Mr. Mathis's stomach is exposed, a rectangle of human flesh. So, no, this is not a man lying in front of me, but a soft and tiny surgical field waiting to be pierced. It's a brilliant tactic of dissociation, transforming barbarity into the beneficent act of entering another person's body in order to heal him. Lights blare. Monitors beep non-stop, alternating but in a regular rhythm. The room is so tight, the walls close in from behind me and were pressed up against the gurney, so Mr. Mathis's thigh touches my leg. The first incision is my moment of truth. If I faint, I'll humiliate myself. I'll shame our family. I'll expose my father and turn a routine hernia into a liver disaster. My father makes the cut. A line of red appears. That's blood, I tell myself. Mr. Mathis's blood. But it's also a red line on a warm beige background. I don't faint. I don't even feel faint. Whatever my veins do when they reroute my blood away from my brain on sight of my own blood outside my body, they do not do this now. The men in my family usually alternate between two modes, anxious or asleep. But my father is calm, so I'm calm. I watch calmly. Dad is utterly alert, engaged and relaxed. He is so methodical and deliberate that I'm engrossed. We're not in silence because Dad describes Mr. Mathis's medical history and why it matters to know that history. He explains mistakes to avoid and points out slight irregularities. His voice is steady, serious, soft, but strong enough for all to hear. A nurse holds a silver tray of sharp and glistening tools. She knows what my father will need and has laid them out in perfect sequence. Dad calls for an instrument and plucks it from the nurse's outstretched hand. They are in total sync. He lifts a flap of skin and explains aloud each move of his scalpel. He articulates the elegance of his control, describing how much pressure to apply, the angle, the rotation of the wrist, and the occasional need for another pair of hands. As he finishes with a tool, Dad lays it down in a second silver tray, empty and shimmering, creating a mirror image of used utensils, tarnished and consecrated with blood. And I am here, standing at his side, right by the forge. We are plowing that furrow together. Dad locates the hernia, the tear in the stomach lining. He's announcing the operation for my benefit, 
but everyone is attentive, so he invites us to take a look. I move closer. There it is. I think I see it. Amidst the translucent layers of flesh that hide under our clothes, under the white napkins, under our skin. But I'm not the only gawker. Three men across the table lean over Mr. Mathis as well, one by one, as my father points with his scalpel and holds the flap of skin with forceps. When I see the forceps, they make me think of home, because we always had forceps in the kitchen drawer, or in that large plastic cup, the one filled with pencils and rulers. So I've been playing with forceps since I was three years old. My father pokes gently to see if anything else needs mapping or mending. Right then, Mr. Mathis twitches, and his leg bangs into my leg. I miss a heartbeat and leap inside my scrubs. But I'm still standing, and now I'm calm. My father steps to the side. The flap of skin is still in the clutches of the forceps, and then Dad holds out his scalpel. He says, Now you try. Am I supposed to carve my initials into Mr. Mathis's stomach lining? Go ahead. I feel myself go weak. Make no sudden moves. No irrevocable gestures. Start to raise your hand, but leave the possibility to redirect your fingers to scratch your nose, or to push up your glasses, or to adjust your mask. I slowly lift my hand and lift my eyes at the same time. My father is not offering the scalpel to me. He is instructing three surgical residents directly across from us who are watching their teacher, my father, with no glass divider in the way. And now, as I watch him teach for the very first time, I grasp that my father has students, disciples, that this tiny operating room is packed because my father is mentoring his surrogate medical heirs, and I'm not one of them, which of course is my choice, but still, it stings a little. In any case, it's the perfect camouflage for my presence and an excuse for him to provide play-by-play and perhaps a subtle suggestion. Dad continues modeling moves for the residents, handing off the scalpel and watching, one after the other, gently correcting and guiding them. And somehow each of them seems to know just when it's time to return the scalpel to the master. We reach the one-hour mark. The lesson is complete. And Dad switches gears, talking about the Jewish holidays and directing his comments to Dr. Glassmutter and to Dr. Perlman, his fellow fisherman, while keeping his eyes pinned all the time to the resident who's attempting to suture the patient closed. It's a neat balancing act. Dr. Glassmutter tells my father that at Yom Kippur services, he's going to pledge 300 bucks so they won't bother him at all for another year. I'm proud of you, Ira. I have plenty to say about the archaic practice of calling out your pledge on Yom Kippur. It's exactly this kind of public pressure which drives Jews away from the synagogue. What I don't know is that canceling the shameful shaming will reduce synagogue revenue by 40%, but thanks to my vow of silence, my uninformed opinion remains my own. At this point, my father turns to his real subject. Have either of you visited Israel yet? Dad's been to Israel 20 times, the last several times to visit me. Marty, the anesthesiologist, 
says he would go to Israel, but he doesn't know any Hebrew. I got by with Yiddish. Dr. Glassmutter says that while he doesn't follow the Israel news closely, he knows they're having a terrible war over there. He's right. A war with Lebanon. I'm jumping out of my drab green second skin to untangle the political mess for these neophytes. But I swallow my Israel lecture. Marty says he's not afraid to go, but his wife would never agree to put the kids in danger. And in any case, they like their beach club. You'll be in Jerusalem in a nice five-star hotel. You won't feel a thing that's going on. Well, Marty's job is to make sure people feel nothing. But I dismiss this snarky thought. And then I ask myself why I've suddenly joined the Israel Tourism Board when what's important is that I'm witnessing another phenomenon I've never seen before. My father making small talk. And then this Israel chit-chat concludes abruptly, with no new converts to Zionism. Dad shares a teaching point while he walks a resident through the last suture. Skin is like an onion. Skin is made of layers, and they need room to breathe. So stitches have to be close but loose. This here is a bit tight, and, oh, this is a bit sloppy. Watch what I'm doing. It takes longer to keep the stitching unobtrusive, but later there will be only minimal scarring, hardly any evidence that we were here at all. Dad undoes the last few sutures. I expect it'll be like retying a shoelace, but it's closer to precision tailoring. He's not showing off. The residents are hypnotized at how his fingers flutter as they create a seam of perfect symmetry. My father is fully absorbed in this simple task of sewing shut a human being. It's this craftsmanship that impresses me most. Dad's expertise, that knowledge based on a thousand trials, muscle memory, tempered with wisdom, judgment, and confidence. Dad is in the flow. And that's when it hits me. My father is happy. Yes, he works insanely long hours, has done so throughout my life, and has missed much of the day-to-day of my childhood. But he's having fun. True, he's having this fun without me. But no matter. My father goes to work for pleasure, to enjoy himself. God damn it, Robert Bly, you left that out. My father loves doing surgery. And now, at long last... I've stood shoulder to shoulder for 90 minutes with my dad in his operating room. How'd it go? My mother asks, afraid to hear how I'd fainted and fallen face first, plunging the scalpel into the patient's abdomen, killing the poor man and ending my father's career. It was great, I say. It was, my father agrees. Dad was amazing. He taught three residents how not to leave a scar. A minimal scarring, my father corrects, embarrassed. And he tried to convince his team to go to Israel. My mother perks up. Really? Who? Perlman and Glassmutter. They'll never spend the money. I know. And Dad had such a good time, I say, trying to refocus the conversation. He really loves doing surgery. Of course I do is all my father answers, perhaps pondering why this is news to his youngest son. Later that night, I moved down the long hall of our house, stopping shy of the entrance to the kitchen, and I overhear my parents talking about me. They know I'm there, but I don't want to talk to them right now. 
I slip out the screen door onto the patio and into the backyard. This door squeaks loudly, confirming first my presence and then my absence. It's a moonless night, and I can even make out a few stars. I'm in the dark, invisible. How long would it take to gain Dad's expertise and confidence? And how long until I get good at something that I truly love to do? Five years? Twenty years? Maybe a lifetime? But the hairy man does not appear. I move to where I can see my parents through the kitchen window. They're lit up as if they're on the set of a television show. My father is sitting with his back to me, and at first I can't make out what they're saying, but then their voices carry, or perhaps I'm imagining it. <clears throat> he can do a six-year program. Saul, he's got the brains. He's not going to be a doctor. But I don't understand what he's doing. Well, neither do I. After this, I can't hear them anymore, or perhaps I never could. My hairy man is just there, illuminated on the other side of the glass. Of course, he is on call. He's always on call. He lives on call. And if I'm sick, he'll be there to heal me, to pull me up from the well. And if I call him with his song, he'll whisk me away to a six-year medical program. But I'm still seeking the melody to my song. And so nobody comes, and I'm on my own. Me, the hairy man, and I. Son of a Surgeon was written and performed by Don Futterman. It was directed by Gizem Ozdemir with help from Nimrod and Mayan Slor Futterman. The music at the beginning and end of our show is by Rory Sullivan. Son of a Surgeon was recorded at the TLV1 Studios in Tel Aviv.